Hi, everyone, and welcome to IIM's podcast. Today's topic is how to give a great pitch. Um, I have Lee Harris here with us, who's our managing member for IIM, and my name's Lydia Kincaid. I'm the managing director. Thanks again for, for joining us today. So, Lee, we see a lot of pitches. I mean, over the years, we've probably seen hundreds of pitches by now, really, because we see them every month, every week. So what are some things that you as an investor really hone in on when an or when a founder is pitching for the first time? Sure, Lydia. There's, there's so many things. And uh, I have some general uh, do's and don'ts. Um, you know, obviously, when you're making a pitch, hopefully you're using the pitch deck of some sort. Uh, we've actually had a, a pitch recently where we were expecting a founder to use the pitch deck, uh, pretty basic. Uh, and he said, oh, no, I wasn't planning to. I was just going to talk. And it was a Zoom call. And he didn't even have his video on. And it was a really bad uh, experience for, for everybody in our group. Uh, so uh, the, and the shame of it is he had sent a pitch deck to you a few weeks earlier and then didn't bother to use it. So if you're going to make a pitch, you ought to have a pitch deck of some sort. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be terribly pretty or elaborate, but it, it helps keep keep the, the pitch on point. Uh, probably my number one the piece of advice to uh, a founder or a founding team that's making the pitch is be 100% honest. Uh, don't stretch the truth. Um, we, we see this time and again where there's a bit of puffery and sometimes it crosses the line. And unfortunately, uh, we're going to smoke all that out in our due diligence process. To so the case in point, we had a, a founder who had represented that a certain individual who we know uh, was an advisor to that company. And it took a single phone call to find out that not, uh, not true. This guy was not an advisor and he was quite surprised that his name was being used that way. Um, and as a result, we opted not to invest in that company. That's a, a pretty basic, just be, just be honest. Uh, an another thought I have is uh, simplify the complex. Uh, a lot of the, the companies we look at are in technical spaces, <clears throat> whether it's human health uh, or animal health or the agriculture space and ag technology in particular. And some of that's pretty, uh, pretty in the weeds. And again, our advice is stay out of the weeds if you can. Uh, but at the same time, simplify the, the complicated product or service that, that you're using, there will be domain experts that uh, uh, will ask questions and, and sometimes it's appropriate to get into the weeds, but uh, you'll have a, a, a pitch that, that goes off the rails if you get too deep in the, into the weeds. And then I, I also like to, uh, and this is an old adage, but are you selling a, a vitamin pill or are you selling a, a painkiller? And I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast, and it goes uh, again, I think, uh, to emphasize that uh, painkillers, I, I, I heard a study recently that was done by um, an individual in the venture space who said that 70% of the successful companies uh, in, in venture space are uh, working with a painkiller. What does that mean? It means that the problem you're solving 
and the solution that you're 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 proposing is is critical uh, to the end user. They have to have that that particular product, and if they if they don't, if it's a vitamin pill, that's something that's nice to have and may make your life better, metaphorically, but you don't have to have it. The painkiller you got to have, and that study said 70% of the successful uh, companies, uh, at least in, in the recent past, have been working in that painkiller space, if you will. And, and Lydia, you might, along those same lines, um, there's, a, there's a moat. Uh, Warren Buffett always likes to say, uh, build a moat. Uh, that's big and wide and deep. And uh, as, as you're making the pitch, you ought to be thinking about that moat. And how, how would you describe what that moat means to a founder? Sure. Well, one thing I would say um, related to a moat is that anybody can have a great idea, but it takes a really great entrepreneur to build a business, be able to execute the business and protect that business from competitors. So I like to think of a moat as having lots of different components. It could be intellectual property in the form of a patent. Um, trademarks are like, they're okay to have and probably a, a must have in order to protect your name and your branding in that sense. But usually when founders use their trademark as part of their moat, that, that isn't as strong as saying you have a patent that's protected not only in the US, but internationally. And you also get to have patents that are related to that patent. Um, so patents are a big part of a company's moat. It keeps competitors from being able to encroach on their business. Um, I would also consider the team a part of a company's moat as well. Is this founder really building a team of the best and brightest, people who are experts at what they do, people who have experience, people who have the right connections? Um, that can be really critical for a company's success. And if you have that sort of secret sauce in your team, that can really help a business explode um, and be really, really successful. Um, when it comes to competitors, Lee, you're right. I, I never like to hear, we have no competitors because that, that's just not true. Even if you're making a new market, so to speak, in whatever it is that you do, there's probably gonna be somebody else who's at least got a related idea or something that's a little bit different that's trying to solve the same problem, if the problem's worth solving. Now, if there really are no competitors, truly, that kind of makes me think, well, why? <laughs> is this problem really worth solving? Because if the problem is huge and painful, then there should be several companies, many several companies, trying to compete um, for that sort of customer base. So I think that goes into the moat as well, honestly. Um, and another piece of what you said, Lee, that I think could be interwoven with everything is to know your audience. I mean, you speak about not getting into the weeds, totally true. Um, I think sometimes founders forget that the people they're talking to might not have the same experience that they do or might not have the industry expertise that they do, um, or maybe they have even more industry expertise than they do. So I would encourage founders to really understand who you're talking to, where you're at in the process. Is this a small group? Is it a large group? Do you need to use a pitch deck to your point, Lee, which most of the times in my experience, yes, a pitch deck is helpful because you can see stats with numbers. You can see that nice revenue growth projection on paper or on the screen um, and also speak to it. Um, but some groups may not like pitch decks. Some it might be a little bit more informal if it's just a meeting over coffee or something. Um, but I think knowing your audience 
can really help a company be successful in the pitch process. Um, is there anything else, Lee, that you wanted to add to that actual pitching? You know, back to the weeds, just this is anecdotal, but we've, we've experienced, you and I both have experienced numerous pitches where uh, the founders are very proud of the product. The product may be uh, very technical in nature. And uh, when you ask them what time it is, they want to tell you how to build the clock. And that's just, that's not necessary in a general pitch. Now in the due diligence phase, uh, one of the things that we will have is, is domain expert, to, uh, do, our domain expertise will, will come into play and there will be uh, a lot of uh, exploration of the technical aspects of the, of the product. There's a time and a place to get very technical and in a general pitch, it's not necessary to get into the weeds that way. And, and again, we applaud those founders that are excited and enthusiastic about their product, but they do make the mistake sometimes of getting way off track and into areas that none of us understand as, as lay people. Another thing, and you'll grin about this, is, is a uh, venture term called TAM, T-A-M, Total Addressable Market. And we see this way more than not, where founders puff up the size of the total addressable market. We had a pitch just the other day where <clears throat> the founding team was claiming that uh, their solution was uh, addressing a $34 billion uh, TAM. And when we dig in a little bit, we find that now they're not solving a $34 billion problem. They're part of a solution potentially for that, but it does not serve them well to, to try to extrapolate off a $34 billion number. Um, I, you know, I, I think if somebody came in and said, the big problems, 34 billion, when we uh, narrow it down, we're a $6 billion piece of that problem. And we expect to, to get 2% of the market share or whatever the number might be. Now that sounds like a more logical conclusion to reach than just we're solving a $34 billion uh, problem. Yeah, uh, I think I think that's a much better way to do it, Lee. And like related to that, you said 2% market penetration. How many founders have we seen that say, we're gonna have 100% market penetration because we're gonna beat all of our competitors. And that's just not believable. Right. Um, so I think being knowledgeable and realistic about your company's projections and um, all those stats related to that goes a long way in terms of yeah. credibility and, and convincing investors that you know what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you talked a little bit about the intellectual property. That's one of the big failings we see, especially when there's, there's a technical element to a product or, or service. Uh, we we find that the founding team often is light on that intellectual property protection. They have not yet spent the money uh, or the time and effort to really figure out what they can protect. And, and uh, sometimes they say, well, we have a patent pending and that's fine. There is protection with a patent pending, but what exactly is that patent covering? And, <clears throat> I would suggest to any founder uh, that's making a pitch, 
really do your homework when it comes to intellectual property and the, and the protections that you need for your business. Uh, because that's, again, most of the time when we're having pitch conversations with founders, we're, we're learning that they're light in that area. And that, I, I don't know what percentage of the time, Lydia, we, we turn down a company because uh, they just don't have the right kind of protection. Uh, now, if somebody came and said, we need to raise $500,000 in a round, in an angel round, and part of that money, half that money is going to go to the lawyers to really shore up our intellectual property uh, protections. Now you have our attention. But oftentimes it's a, it's fairly cursory in the in the pitch. If it's and we usually have to ask in the first place about it. So uh, yeah, and not to get into the weeds too much in this podcast, Lee. But yes, we have turned down companies because their intellectual property isn't lined up or one more point about it, or that the intellectual property is assigned to a person and not the company, or it's assigned to a university that isn't really willing to let it go to the company. So there's some nuances there as well that that we do pay attention to in our due diligence process that are important for founders to take note of. Um, Switching gears a little bit, Lee, how many times have we seen founders pitch um, with this nice hockey stick curve, as we like to call it, um, of further revenue projections, but with no viable assumptions to back it up. I think companies um, are well served to really do research on what would be acceptable to their customers um, with a price point and be able to have plan A, plan B, plan C for what happens if you can charge the most, the middle amount, or maybe lower than you expect, um, coupled with what your expenses are going to be. I think, it, I mean, investors want to see that this can be a business, not that this is just an idea and we see the craziest projections, which is it's good to be aggressive, I think, with it with projections because we want to see that this can be a really, really big and successful company, but there needs to be a layer of reality on top of that as well. Because if it's too far out of line, then you lose you lose that piece of credibility with the investors and think, well, so then if you don't meet your mark, it looks like a failure. So, so that's also related then to valuation. Um, sometimes founders will come to us and we ask them, okay, so really interesting value proposition, interesting story, great pitch. So what do you want from us? What's your raise? What are the terms? What are you going to do with that money? How much runway or how much time does this amount of money give you? And sometimes founders don't have a response. And so um, what I would recommend to founders and also investors who are considering an investment um, is to take that question really seriously. If you're out raising money from investors, you should know how much money you need and you can set a range for that as well. Um, like maybe you need a minimum of $500,000 to get you 18 to 24 months of runway. It would help you build a great team, land five new key customers, and then be ready for your next raise. But what if investors are so interested, they're, really, they're, re- they're willing to write you a $2 million check Um, What would that get you? I like seeing that founders have different plans for different financial scenarios and really being able to understand where that money gets them and what the next step is going to be after that. Yeah, and and, and along those lines, uh, the the runway is critical. We don't particularly like to see a company come and say, uh, what we're raising will get us six months uh, or nine months. 
because they're just going to constantly be in the fundraising mode and they take their eye off the ball in terms of developing a product or service. Our rule of thumb has generally been a minimum of 12 months. We really like to see 18 months. And if, if they come back and say, you know, we need this money to, to, to get out 24 months, that's wonderful because that, that shows that they're thinking long-term. Uh, but by again, would encourage founders not to try to, to, to do these little bridge rounds for six months here or six months there because it never works. Uh, you, you think you, you, you're raising enough to go six months and then you run out of money and uh, you really needed it for eight months or 12 months or 18 months. And so uh, that's important to us. And I think one, one other thing that founders should be prepared to talk about is, is the path to exit. Um, as investors, we want to know when we get our money back. Uh, we tell our investor group that most companies, it's a seven to 10 year process. Uh, and that's kind of an industry average when we're investing at the, at the very earliest stage. Some, some of our companies are going to exit sooner. We like to know what's the exit plan. Is the exit plan uh, to sell to a private equity group? Is it to sell to a strategic uh, partner? Is it to go uh, to an, an initial public offering or a SPAC? Um, and what's the time frame? And what are the, the, the thresholds that need to be met uh, to get there? How many more rounds of funding do you expect as a founder before you have an exit for, for us and, and for yourself? So I think that's that's something else that should be offered up as part of the pitch, probably at the end of the pitch, you know, tell us how we're going to get out. And to add to that, what I like to see also, and what I know our investors like to see is market comparables. So, okay, if your company's in the human health space, what other exits have occurred recently, like recent last five or 10 years? So at what level have companies exited? What sort of funding did they have to date if that information is available? And even better, what sort of multiple did those investors get? And you might need to extrapolate some based on publicly available information. Um, but what that does for investors is it gives us a sense of what the market appetite is for acquiring. And if you're in the animal health company, you probably know there's only four, maybe five really big companies that are the most active in the animal health acquisition space. So what's their appetite for a company like yours? Is your problem that you're solving part of their broader investment goal. Um, having those data points will go a long way when you're in front of investors and talking about exit strategy. And we don't expect it to be word for word what you say, um, looking forward seven years. But we do want to know that founders have thought about it because what we don't want is a lifestyle business or a business that takes 20 or 30 years um, for us to get our money back. Lee, to your point. Um, so exit is, is really, really important. It also depends on the stage that the company is at. We do expect seed stage companies to take a little bit longer to exit compared to a series A or maybe a series B. Um, so we know that the risk is higher, but we also expect that the return is higher, even if it might take a little bit longer. Um, so founders that have a really good sense of that and can articulate that, um, that really carries a lot of weight with our investors. Yeah, my last piece of advice, I think, uh, for a pitch, for a good pitch, would be uh, try not to read 
everything off the, the slide deck, have a conversation, uh, be prepared, uh, be engaging. Uh, we, we've had pitches where uh, it was scripted and that's not necessary. And it, it, it sometimes comes across as too slick, uh, too, too overly prepared. Uh, just, just be yourself, have a conversation with your, uh, with your audience. Um, and obviously the, the pitch deck, especially if you're using a PowerPoint to presentation is all fine and good to stay on point. But the way I like to prepare, uh, PowerPoints is maybe it's a single word or a single image on a screen and then talk about that. And, and that's more captivating, I think, than a, uh, a whole bunch of verbiage that you just read to, to your audience. So not a not a huge deal, but it, it does make a difference. That, that, that would be my last piece of advice. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It makes it a lot more engaging to feel like you're talking with somebody as opposed to being talked at. Um, and that makes the experience better for everybody. Um, the last piece, I, piece of advice I would give has to do with the follow-up after the pitch. So usually what goes over the best um, in my experience is when founders are actively following up either with me or whoever the point person is on the team afterwards. So they're, they're seeking feedback, they're trying to learn what the next steps are if they haven't already. Usually they, they know ahead of time what next steps might be. Um, they're ready to share their data room if due diligence is the next steps. Um, I think it's really important for founders to be proactive and not just reactive because that helps get them further along faster in the process. It's nice to see from founders that there is a sense of urgency and that they are really interested in our investment group and they're the ones moving things along and, and anxious to get going. Um, of course, all, all within reason, too much follow-up um, can tend to be a bit overwhelming and, and that doesn't go over well, but I would say the founders who did ultimately receive funding from us were really proactive in making sure we had all the information that we need. They were quick to follow up. They were transparent. They did what they said they were going to do. Um, all those things make for a really good experience on both sides. So, so with that, thank you again for listening today and we'll look forward to doing this again soon. And thanks Lee.